Well, good morning, Grace Point Church. How are you doing this morning? I'm so thankful to be back in the house of the Lord with you. I got a couple of quick announcements. We're having some technical issues this morning. It happens. Well, what that means for you is that there's not going to be any lyrics on the screen. We don't have any videos today, but none of that even matters because we serve a God who is greater than all those things. I mean, I love coming into the house of God and worshiping with you. We're going to still do that. We're going to accomplish that today, uh, even without all those resources. We're talking about resources. Uh, I'm so thankful that you guys are so generous with your giving. Uh, it supports things like that. It supports our tech. It supports replacements. It supports uh, things like these invitation cards, uh, which are really important resources that we can get out into our community. Uh, so I got two things to ask about this uh, resource that your giving has provided, uh, that when you leave here today, that you would take one of these or, or five of these and that you'd hand them out to people that you love, care about, especially to people who may not know Jesus so they can come here and hear his gospel. And so... And also, in addition to inviting people, we ask that you would be in prayer uh, for our Easter services. Be in prayer for the people that God is calling to himself. Uh, that they'd be open and receptive to hear his word. Uh, and that they would come here uh, to be filled. Uh, they need an opportunity to meet, know, and follow Jesus. And so this is just a very simple way uh, that we can engage in our community uh, and invite people and be a part of that process. So let's stand. We're going to pray together. Uh, we're going to give this service to the Lord. We're going to worship anyway. And we're going to do our best. Uh, you should know these songs. Res Power, we learned last week. We're going to do House of the Lord. We're going to do Oceans. And so just sing with us best you can. Be present. Be present with the Lord. Take your mind off these earthly distractions. They're temporary. But let's set our minds on things that are eternal. So let's pray together. God. I'm so thankful to be back in the house of the Lord because there is joy here. There is freedom here. Uh, I'm thankful, God, that you are drawing people to yourself. I pray as we prepare for our Resurrection Sunday, our Easter services, that you would draw the community of people who are unbelievers here to Grace Point to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can experience the life change that we all have and that we share. And that's why we get to celebrate. God, we're going to celebrate today with the song Resurrection Power. Uh, because in you, we have that hope. In you, we have freedom. In you, we have security. So, God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We're going to put our hands together. And we're going to clap. And we're going to celebrate what God's doing. This is called Res Power. Oh, clap your hands. All ye people. Shout, praise unto God with a voice of triumph. Oh, 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 with a voice of triumph. Oh, 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 you are the everlasting God. Shine your light, shine your light through us for all the world 
thank you, God, for the hope that we have in you, for the freedom we have in you, God. We worship you this morning. Hallelujah. Oh, clap your hands. Oh, Thank you for the resurrection power that we have in your son. You are worthy of our praise this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for all you're doing. We worship. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who is. Worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison door. He opened the prison door. He parted the raging sea. He parted the raging sea. My God holds the victory. My God, He holds the victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet.
Amen. Uh, the next song we're going to sing is Oceans, and it's going to be led by Harley. Harley's part of our next-gen department. Uh, she's an amazing young lady, uh, and we decided to sing this song because we are going through different things in our life, different seasons for different reasons, uh, and so we all got our own little personal ocean that causes anxiety or fear or doubt. Um, we have a God who's so much bigger than all that. And Philippians 4 says that, that do not be anxious about anything, but through prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will fill your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. And I'm so thankful for that peace. I'm so thankful that I can turn to God and I can, I can pray and I can cast my cares upon him and say, God, I'm in the middle of this, this storm, this situation. But I trust you. And through my trust in you, that I take actionable steps of faith and I pray. I submit it to you. I plead. I beg. I say, God, I need you. I'm putting you before this thing. This thing's bigger than me, but you're bigger than all things. You're sovereign over all things. And so how many of us this morning are desperate for God to be present in our lives, for the peace of God to reign in our hearts? Well, we're going to sing this song, Oceans. And as we sing it, let's put our eyes and our attention on Jesus.
God for the opportunity to worship you this morning together as a family. I pray that it was pleasing to you, God. These technical issues and things, they don't matter. They're just a distraction. God, we want to be present with you. We want to worship you authentically, and that's a heart that's surrendered to God. That's what you love. So God, we surrender this service to you. We ask for your grace. Help prepare our hearts to receive your word with clarity and sincerity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Our God is good. He is king. He reigns. Let's give him a clap offering. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, our uh, tech team has been working on this issue since 6 o'clock this morning. That's how early they come in. Can we just give our tech team a round of applause? Thank you. Uh, for that. And we may not uh, have uh, words on the screen, but you can still worship. And I know a lot of you are still worshiping. And we may not have words on the screen, but we have the word. So this is the most important thing uh, today. So, so anyways, uh, we had an, a video about Easter. Easter's next Sunday. Um, <clears throat> you know, we're, our children are going to be right across 
uh, the, the way there, and they have their own program, all gift bags and all that. So typically, the last number of years on Easter, families would bring their kids in here, the older kids, but we want you to do your normal thing and put your kids in, in children's ministry next week. Also, next week with Easter, every one of you that calls Grace Point your home, you are all on guest services next Sunday. You're all, all with your friendly face and welcome and greeting. And if you love to sit in the back, you need to give up your seat and move forward, okay? Because you're going to help, help people that uh, are not c- come on a regular basis. Uh, they, can, they have their own seats back there. So please, we're going to have a chance to, all of us have guest services to serve uh, those who are coming. So anyways, we're, we're diving, if you're uh, joining us today, we're finishing up this series today called The Untouchables, uh, where we've been looking at some very hot, relevant topics. Actually, all four of these have been in the news all throughout this week, and we've been really talking about what does the Bible say and how should we respond uh, to, to these issues. So we've talked about abortion, we've talked about homosexuality, we talked last week on transgenderism, and today on critical race theory. Now, God put this on my heart last year, last March, and uh, so I've been studying for, for this for months, especially this one today, but um, it is very, very complicated. But if anything out of this series that I would love for, for you uh, to, to take from this series is the question, is how do I determine right versus wrong? How do I determine right versus wrong? And we can say, uh, you know, well, I think this, or I feel that, or I believe that. And I hope that as you move forward, as I've been repeating these things, and all of our teachers know that the first law of learning is repetition, that as, as you go through and you come up with an issue, and you think, well, what is, is this right or wrong? That you'll remember this and say, okay, I can think this or feel this way or believe this or that. Great. Based upon what? What are you basing it upon? And we've been talking about the wise answer would be to base it upon an objective standard of truth. Now, if you'd like to purchase this uh, way scale afterwards, that would be great after the second service. But this is an objective standard of truth. It doesn't care what I think I weigh what I feel that I weigh, what I believe I weigh. Oh, it's just not moving very much. Um, This is what I weigh. It's unbiased. It's unchanging. And to have an objective standard of truth helps us to to make a decision whether something is right or wrong. Now, here's the problem, is we have a culture that we don't, Our culture doesn't want any objective standards of truth. And when there are no objective standard of truth, we've been talking about there, it leads to uh, confusion, it leads to chaos, and I've added this this week, and it also leads to division. And these three words describe the American culture that you and I are living in today. There's division, there's chaos, and there's confusion. There's confusion, there's chaos, and there's division over so many things. And it's because as a culture, we have walked away from an objective standard of truth. And all through this series, I've been sharing that I have an objective standard of truth, and it's the Word of God. It's unbiased, it's unchanging, and it's my filter to take the issues that that we're facing, filter it through the Word of God first, not my feelings first, not my past, previous experience or, or situations, 
uh, that filter through the Word of God, what does the Word of God say? And then I can come to a conclusion based upon the Word of God. Now, if you, if you don't believe the Word of God, you don't say, well, you say, I don't believe that that's, that that's just a book, whatever. Part one, I started the first part of it, of giving evidences of why I can put my faith, a reasonable faith, in this, the scriptures called the Word of God. Well, today we're going to finish this, land this plane on uh, talking about critical race theory. Critical race theory. Again, when God put this on my heart last March, because uh, every March, uh, a couple weeks ago, I did this. I, I planned for the, the next ministry year from September through, through the end of the summer uh, of what does God want me to teach on? What books does he want us to go through in the scripture? What issues to cover? When he gave me this topic, I write it down on my yellow pad, and I was like, I don't really want to talk about these things. And then when it came to critical race theory, I had never heard of it. I'm like, how am I supposed to teach on something? The guy was like, I've given you a year to figure it out. So, so anyways, I've been studying uh, for this for, for many, many months. But it is, it has, it is causing division all across our country. It's dividing um, people's dividing parents, it's dividing schools, it's dividing churches, it's dividing church denominations. And the more I have d- dove into critical race theory and its foundation, it, it's just like it is embedded everywhere I turn, everywhere you turn, everywhere we live. And so we're going to talk about what it is, and I can only scratch the surface, give you some big picture bullet points, and we're going to talk about what it is. What's the foundation? What is it standing on? What is it resting on? And then what does the Bible say and how do we respond to it? What do we respond to it? So here's, here's uh, kind, of, kind of the bullet points of critical race theory, some background. It is a philosophy that has been around for decades. It has been active in colleges and universities for decades and decades and decades. But now it has been embedded into kindergarten through, through high school education. It's embedded, uh, it's embedded in our culture. It's embedded in institutions. It's embedded in workplaces. It's embedded in churches and, and houses of worship. And it's embedded in local, state, and federal government. And critical race theory is embedded in our military and all the training and all these areas. Now, some basic presuppositions that, that I have, that's in print, and I pulled from their websites, you know, that are proponents of it. Um, they're not hiding what they stand for, what it, what it is. They're not hiding from this ideology. They believe in it. But here are some basic presuppositions. Uh, components of critical race theory. Uh, first of all, is that racism is st- systemic and structural in America. Uh, they believe that. And it's embedded in the American legal system, uh, American institutions, uh, Amer- American capitalism, and the free market enterprise. That Racism is systemic and institutional, and, and really, it's, it's in everything structurally in America. Now, this, is, this next point of, of a tenet of it is very, very important. 
And, and, it, and they, they talk about it. I was, I was, again, going over some stuff, finding some new websites, some new corporate uh, teachings of this from corporations. And it's, it's highlighted. And they're like, be very careful that you understand that critical race theory is not the result of individual racist, racist thinking or actions. They say if you go down the path where you, you personalize, it's on an individual basis, you, you won't be able to move the conversation forward because of emotion. So they take the individual part out and they, they group, we're going to group people in classes and in groups. Because you don't, they don't want to go down to, as an individual, your individual actions, your individual thoughts regarding um, racism. And the end game of critical race theory, the end game is that American, American laws, traditions, norms, institutions, and free market enterprise, pretty much everything in our culture, Everything in our culture needs to be dismantled because of institutional systemic racism. And I've been, in my studies, I, I saw early on it was it's encouraged, and then it's now insisted upon, and it's a it's a very clear goal to really dismantle everything that you know about our American culture because of. Systemic racism. Now, in my study, the bigger concern I have, well, I have lots of concerns with critical race theory, but the bigger concern that came to me as I, as I dove deep into this is the foundation on which critical race theory has begun, is resting on, is, is really, it's, it's their footholds, it's their foundation, and that is called critical theory. Critical theory. I don't know if you've heard or studied this at all, it's a broader movement started in the eight, late 1800s uh, in Germany, and now it's referred to as the Frankfurt School, all right, where a lot of uh, philosophers and, and lawyers and professors were talking about how do you change society? How do you, do you change a society? And they came up with this thing called critical theory. Now, the broader picture is, is, is referred to as the social justice movement. Now, I don't know anybody in this room, I, I know myself, that would be opposed to social justice. And I don't know anybody, especially I'll speak for myself, would, would, not, would not stand for racial injustice. So that's the front door to, to this, this whole ideology. But this critical theory is rooted, unashamedly rooted, in Marxist ideology. Marxist ideology. And it, it is through, through, and through. Now, Karl Marx uh, had groups of the rich and the poor. And, and the basic, you know, divisions in Marxism is you have the oppressors and those who are oppressed. So on the foundation of critical theory, there are four main, there's more, but four main uh, theories, meaning they're not just theories like in the, in, the, in the 
kind of the mental world or we have this idea. No, it's, it's a movement. These four movements are standing upon critical theory. And you see the, the difference, and I'll show you, of the oppressors and those who are oppressed. So critical race theory is one that's resting on this foundation. And the oppressors are whites and those oppressed are those are people of color. Gender theory, we talked, I didn't mention this last week, there's so much to say in the transgender movement, and it is indeed a movement. The basis of this is gender theory, and there's a debate, are we going to start teaching gender theory to kindergartens and, and uh, younger elementary? Well, the oppressor are cisgender, meaning those who you say, this, this is where I was born, this is the gender I was assigned at birth, and this is, this is who I am. Um, that's cisgender, and that, that all those of cisgender are the oppressors, and the oppressed are those uh, in, the, in the transgender, and all the different genders uh, that is continuing to expand today. So there's the oppressor versus the oppressed. Queer theory is also a part of this. It's uh, heteronormative, uh, heteronormative, meaning what is norm in our, our culture is a heterosexual girl and a heterosexual boy meet, they look, they fall in love, they date, they marry. That is a norm in our, uh, most cultures, sorry about ours, but that norm, uh, normative, you know, heterosexual norm is the oppressor and those who are oppressed is anyone in the queer uh, definition and it's, it's, it's a growing list of, of, of queers with any, anybody that's not heterosexual. So, and then uh, feminist theory is men are the oppressors and women are those who are oppressed. All of these movements are on the foundation, what is called critical theory, critical theory. Now, inside of critical theory, there is no forgiveness or salvation for any of the oppressed or, or oppressor class. There's no forgiveness there's no salvation. It doesn't matter how many times you say, I'm sorry. It doesn't matter how many times you, you, you repent and, and apologize. There, there's no salvation or forgiveness. And in critical theory, which I found was super interesting and made my head hurt as I'm, I'm reading theses of, of, of this, is that they, and this is started in the Frankfurt School, is that language is a tool to control and to change things. They, 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 they said this part of the strategy is to change societies. And this is the quote that, that what needs to take place is the re-engineering of language to achieve Marxist goals. And one of the Marxist goals is to defeat capitalism. That's one of them. But that is a part of critical theory is the whole issue of language. And using language to bring about change and control. So therefore, words and phrases need to be re-engineered. We would say change the definition that helps to advance the movement forward. Now, one of the, the, the things that have been re-engineered, the language that have been re-engineered in critical race theory, is they've changed the old goal that really was alive and well for many decades in America and really kicked off in the 60s with the uh, civil rights movement is the word equality. 
Equality means equal value and equal opportunity. I think everyone in this room, pretty much, I would, I would believe that we all believe in equality, that we are all created equal in the sight of God. Amen? All right, and that, that, that we needed a country, and it wasn't always this way. We had crazy, stupid, wrong rules and cultural traditions to not provide equal opportunity. Now, here, here's the thing that just kind of put chills up my back in studying this. In critical theory, they are opposed strongly against meritocracy. Meritocracy is... You succeed based upon your own merit, your hard work, your effort, your diligence, you know, all, all character, that it's meritocracy. You, you do not become an NFL professional player without earning it. But critical theory is completely in opposition to meritocracy. In critical race theory, and I, I've seen it, and I've read it, and I've watched videos they're changing things where that if you have a drive as an individual, a drive to success, that is racist. To have character that I'm going to work hard and do my best and move up the ladder and I'm going to earn it myself, that is now a racist mindset. Again, that goes back to critical theory in opposition to meritocracy. So the equality word that I believe all of us would believe in wholeheartedly of equal value every single person no matter who they are where they've come from equal value and equal opportunity that has been replaced by the word equitable or equity I'm not talking about the value of your home above which you have you know that you pay and you have this is the value this is much I owe that's equity I'm not talking about the financial definition equity in and it's, and it's Everywhere, it's on commercials, it's in writings, it's in teachings, it's in classes. The, that, that is the new goal. Not equality, but equity. And equity is the equality of outcomes. The equality of outcomes. And in my research, you saw that a goal is equity, and then it's now we need to insist upon it, and then the next phase is demand it. And the only way you have equal outcome is you take from some and give it to someone else, which is Marxist, a kind of foundational uh, tenet of Marxism. So that, that's, that's the challenge. And, and I've, I've seen, uh, I watched a number of videos, I mean hours of different videos, of parents, I mean, this all exploded uh, in September across the country with school board you know, meetings with parents, and I saw so many, even, even hus husbands and, and fathers and wives and mothers of color going, no, 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 do not put my child in the category of oppressed. I am teaching my child that you can be who you are, you can att attain anything if you work hard enough, and that is running contrary to the tenets of critical race theory. But it, part, part of the strategy is we got it to re-engineer the language. Now, I was recently sent uh, an email from someone in our church. We got a lot of uh, great teachers that attend Grace Point Church. But I was received a definition 
the, it's a new definition of what, what the meaning of racism is, and it's in the central Kitsap uh, teacher training, part of, the, part of the training. So I want to walk you through, and I think you'll be able to see that the language is being kind of manipulated and re-engineered to go in a different direction um, for the definition of racism. Here's, there's three parts to this. Here's a definition from our district. A, a way, racism is a way of representing or describing race that creates or reproduces structures of domination based upon racial categories. And then they add this. In other words, racism is prejudice plus power. So that's, a, that's an addition. Now, I have been in India where there is racism. The lighter color skin of Indian people is favored. Darker colored Indians is looked down upon. There's prejudice. There is, it's a racist mentality. And these people don't have any power. So, so racism now in, in America, specifically in our, in our county, it's like, no, no, it's, it's prejudice plus power. goes on to give an example in the definition that in the United States, it is grounded in the creation of a white dominant culture that reinforces the use of power to create privilege for white people while marginalizing people of color, whether intentional or not. So you see that there's just been some re-engineering. I'll give you a really a more of a biblical uh, definition of, of racism a little bit later. But here's a little change, a little tweaking, re-engineering uh, that, that I, I believe is, that's it's the seeds of critical race theory. Now, let me jump back into critical theory, the foundation. In critical theory, Christianity... Christianity is the deep-rooted source of the world's problems because they believe Christianity is the ultimate expression of oppressing people. In critical theory, there's a kind of a hierarchy of here are the oppressors, here's the highest of the highest oppressors, and here's the makeup of the highest of the highest oppressed. They are white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, abled body, native-born Christians. Guilty as charged. Um, I do not qualify to even talk, be able to talk about this issue um, in a lot of people's minds. Uh, but thankfully, I believe that biblical truth is colorblind. Uh, we can look at God's word. So now let me pivot to what, what is a biblical view of this, of this issue, of this ideology. Here, if you take, uh, we do have words on the screen, all right? Central point is this. According to scripture, and I will show you, according to scripture, we have one savior for one human race, who are saved into one body. Okay, this is what scripture talks about. According to scripture, not according to Barry, I'm not, I'm not even in the hemisphere of smart of this to come up with it myself, is that we have one savior for one race, that's the human race, 
And those who are saved are saved into one body. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 18 if you would. Um, Ezekiel 18, I'm going to really, this first passage, I'm going to talk about this whole issue of individual choices, right or wrong, versus being grouped into a class and being judged based upon a class, a group of people. God is speaking, God Almighty is speaking to the nation of Israel. And he quotes a proverb that the Jewish people were saying, and God goes, that needs to stop. We need to stop saying that proverb. And the proverb, as we'll, we'll read in just a minute, uh, what, it is, what, it was, what, is, what happened was Israel was twisting their, their thinking, and they were believing that they were being judged unjustly by God because of their parents' sins. That they weren't being judged for their sins. They were being judged for the previous generation or two behind them, their sins. And they're like, it's not fair, God, and, and you're not being just. And so if I could put one phrase to this entire chapter of Ezekiel 18, it's this. It's God's view of individual responsibility. Individual responsibility. I will read uh, 1 through 11. No lower thirds, but here's the word of God. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel said. Basically, God said, write this down. God said this. What do you mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? Here's the proverb. The people eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Verse 3, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. And he explains why. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. The one or the individual who sins is the one who will die. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right, he does not eat at the mountain shrines, those are the idolic, you know, the Baal worship places. Does not eat there or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relations with the woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in a pledge for a loan. He doesn't commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend to them at interest and makes a profit from them. That was illegal for Jewish people to do that to each other. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between two parties. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. This man is righteous, meaning this man is living right, according to God. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Suppose he, this righteous man, has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things that he just talked about. Though the father has done none of them. Basically, what happens to him? Verse 13 gives it the answer. God says, will such a man live? He will not. Because he has done all these detestable things. He is to be put to death. The blood will be on his own head. What God is making very clear 
is that as individuals, we are responsible for our own sin, for our own decisions, for our own sinful choices. Now, is there a thing called generational sin? Yes. I said I'm going to have a message on that in a couple months. Generational sin, meaning this generation lies, cheats, steals, you know, and angry and, and all sorts of bad things. Kids observe. Kids imitate. Kids repeat what they saw. And they lie, cheat, steal, get angry, and be violent, and all this sort of stuff. Why? Because that's what they witnessed. That's what they saw, they imitated, they repeated that. That is called generational sin. But is there, biblically, generational damnation? No. No. We are not guilty by association. We will stand before a holy, righteous God and every single human being will individually face their maker and give an account for their life as an individual. The end of Ezekiel, verse 30, he says, God says, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and turn away from all your offenses then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. That's what God is saying. Now, we should all believe in justice and for justice to take place for anyone that has been wronged. But let me give you the the definition of biblical justice. Biblical justice is the righteous application of God's word and God's truth. It's the righteous application of God's law, of God's truth. It's to be applied to individuals, not being guilty by association. Now, according to Scripture, According to scripture, we have one savior for one human race who are saved into one body. I love studying about heaven. I love thinking about heaven. I love songs about heaven. I love reading about heaven. Heaven for me cannot come fast enough. And what I love when we're going through the, the book of Revelation this past fall is John would give us snapshots of the congregation gathering by the millions and millions in heaven. And, and God was talking about there's every tribe and every nation and every people, you know, grouped together worshiping God. And we will be able to recognize different people, different cultures. God is an amazing, creative, diverse God. I mean, just look at the number of flowers, just look at the, the, the variety of animals. Just look at the, how God just shows off in decorating different birds. Just look around the room. God is a creative God. All right? He makes some, all of us different. But let me show you in the New Testament, when it comes to salvation, how God views mankind. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes to a culture that was so divided and very racist. Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. 
neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. That's how God views mankind. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, doesn't matter our background. And this whole Jew versus Gentile thing, man, that, that was throwing cold water, smacking, you know, doing a Will Smith to the Jewish people, okay? Because they were so arrogant thinking God loves only us and God hates Gentiles. And the, and the gospel's like, no, 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 no. This goes back to the promise that God gave to Abraham that through the seed of Abraham, the whole world will be blessed. With, it's talked about the gospel of Jesus, so he's throwing some cold water in a culture that was like, oh, you're a slave, you're down here. Oh, you're free, you're up here. Oh, you're a woman down here. Oh, you're a man, you're up here. He said, no, no, no. In Christ, we're one. One family. And then it says, okay, now here's how believers, no, no matter their race, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their background, here's how you are to behave. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, right in this, you know, he's, he's been, a, been a prisoner. He goes, then I urge you as a believer to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to build or to keep the unity through the bond of peace. And he makes, makes it super clear. There is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It's so easy for us to identify, well, this is who I am, this is my heritage, this is my lineage, this is my ethnicity, this is my color, and God doesn't want us dividing into that. All, all that is beautiful in the eyes of God's creation. He's the creator. He created us with, with different skin colors and tones. And as believers, we need to live our life with everybody in a way that is pleasing and glorifying to God. Because every human being is made in the image of God and has equal value. And how you treat anybody. And I, I was blessed to grow up in an incredibly diverse uh, cultural background in my neighborhood and school in, in San Jose. And, and I, was, I was drilled into me from my parents. This is how you are to treat everybody. Everybody. In God's eyes, no one's more special than somebody else. And this is how we are to treat everybody. So let me give you the definition of racism. Racism involves three things. Always begins with pride. That my culture, my ethnicity, my race, my color is superior than anybody else. That's pride. It's one of the things God hates. Then it's pride plus prejudice that I look down on anybody else as a different heritage, different ethnicity, different color. And prejudiced against them as somehow they are inferior to me. And then you play it out with partiality. That I'm going to treat my people one way. And anybody else that looks different than me or lives different, it was raised different, different. I'm a, a respecter of people. 
God, through his word, goes, God, I'm not a respecter of people. Because God looks at our hearts. So, one last, one last thing if, for those of you taking notes, and I love this. The cross, the greatest equalizer, right? The cross reconciles all people, races, and ethnicities. Uh, pastor DeGraff, a former pastor for many years, used to say this, the, the, the ground at the cross is always level. It's level. Doesn't matter. And the cross and the resurrection sealed it. The cross reconciles all people, racials, and ethnicities. That should be our mindset when it comes to any, anybody that's different than, than us. So how should believers respond to critical race theory? Well, I want to challenge you to have a biblical response to the whole issue of this class of people are oppressors and this class are the oppressed. You need to have a biblical response, a biblical filter of God's perspective uh, of that. Now, the truth is there are people who oppress, who are idiots and who are prideful, and there are people who are oppressed. And, and, and that, that is true, but in the big picture, how do, how do you have a biblical response, God's perspective, a biblical perspective of this? Because that whole debate comes from somewhere. Second challenge I would have to you, especially if you're a parent, uh, teacher uh, of, of any grade, uh, and believer, actually all believers, is to do your homework with this. This, this whole issue of critical race theory and critical theory is everywhere. It is embedded everywhere. Do not be in the dark about this. Do not be ignorant about this. This is an issue that is not going away. I, I, I highly recommend a book called Fault Lines. Fault Lines by uh, Vody Bachman. Um, that breaks things down. He, he's a pastor, he's a professor, he, he is a sociologist. Um, he, you know, he, he was kind of raised as a kid in South Central L.A. and then, then moved to Texas and all the racism of his background and then he met Jesus. All right, and so he is, uh, um, anyways, I'm really enjoying this, the whole social justice movement and the background of really the worldview that, that critical race theory comes from be a great resource for you have so that when it comes to conversations about race that you have the proper biblical sensitivity but also have some understanding and knowledge so that you can be effective in having a conversation but in conclusion of this issue the foundation for critical race theory is incompatible with a biblical world view it's incompatible. The foundation of critical theory, the foundation for critical race theory and all those other theories is not compatible to having a biblical world view. Well, my prayer in this series is that it will be, have been helpful to you to understand, at least to begin to think, how do I think through these issues and think biblically through these issues so that when something comes up and they're like, well, what do you think about this? You'll be reminded of, well, it doesn't matter what I think or feel or believe. 
What am I basing it on? I hope that you'll have an objective standard of truth, a biblical filter to respond to students in your classes, neighbors that you live next to, parents or different family members in a cultural issue that is catching fire and is really everywhere in our American culture. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that we have your word to turn to, to use as a, as a filter of very delicate, difficult, um, important issues to filter um, it through your word so that we can understand where, where should we stand on, on different issues. Thank you that we do have the word of God that has been inspired by you. It has endured the test of time and accusations and assaults. So, Lord, I pray that we here at Grace Point have a better biblical worldview to teach our kids and our grandkids and, and, and even have conversations in the workplace about things that are really, really important in our culture. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, next, thank you for those two of you. Um, appreciate your prayers. <laughs> I, really, a lot of you said, I'm praying for you. I'm like, yes. And I told my wife, I am so thankful that this series is over. But it's, it's been important. Very, very, and I, I only do it because God really directs me to, and I, I want you to be help, helped as well. On the way out, I encourage you to break, get several of these invites for Easter and hand them to a friend. Pray about them and pray that they'll join you next Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.